Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Before we start today's episode, I'd like to give a huge thanks to Stephen Wilson and Bruce Currier, two of our latest Patreon subscribers. Patreon goes a long way in keeping this show going, and I can't tell you how much I appreciate the support. If you'd like to enjoy ad-free and bonus episodes, you can sign up using the link in the show notes or head to patreon.com forward slash case remains, where you can do so for as little as $3 a month. Now, on with the episode. When an 18-year-old woman went to visit a friend on a summer's night in 1989, it ended in a tragedy that would change her family forever. For her mother, it meant a lifetime trying to convince police that there was more to her death than they seemed willing to accept. This is The Case Remains Podcast, Episode 41, The Unsolved Murder of Caitlin Arquette. On July 16, 1989, Donald Arquette and his wife Lois were watching TV in their home in Albuquerque, New Mexico. The evening was a peaceful one, a typical Sunday where the couple soaked up the last moments of rest before heading back to work the following day. Sixty minutes was just getting started when Donald and Lois heard the front door open and the familiar sound of their daughter Caitlin's footsteps as she made her way down the hall. Don was an electrical engineer, while Lois was professionally known as Lois Duncan, an acclaimed writer known for her thriller and suspense books aimed at young adults. Among her work was a 1973 novel entitled I Know What You Did Last Summer that would go on to be unfaithfully adapted as the iconic 90s slasher movie of the same name. Lois had been married once before to former classmate Joseph Cardozo. Following their divorce in 1962, Lois met and married Don, who adopted Lois's three eldest children. Together, they had two more, including Caitlin, or Kate as they called her, who was the baby of the family. By 1989, Kate was 18 years old, a bright young woman with dreams of becoming a doctor. She had graduated from Highland High School with honours and at that time was enrolled into the University of New Mexico, where she planned to take two summer school classes before attending full-time in the autumn. She lived not far from her parents, in an apartment she shared with her boyfriend, Yoon Nguyen. Yoon was a Vietnamese immigrant, one of the so-called boat people who had made their way over to America by sea following the end of the Vietnam War in 1975. Kate had met him at a coffee house across from the university, and the pair had been together for around a year and a half. At 26 years old, Yoon was eight years her senior, though Kate had told her parents he was only four years older than her. Nevertheless, Yoon was well-liked by Kate's family, 
and he even called Lois mum. But recently, the couple had been having problems, and that particular night was no different. Lois could see that her daughter had been crying, and Kate said that she was still angry with Yoon, who she'd argued with the night before. She told her parents that things had been so much better before he moved into her apartment. A big source of their problems was Yoon's friends, who seemed to always be there, drinking and joking amongst themselves in their native language. Lois and Don suggested that she move back in with them, or ask Yoon to move out. Kate said that she had asked him to move out, but he had refused. In the end, she'd agreed to let him stay for one month before one of her friends moved in instead. Don and Lois pressed her, wondering what had suddenly gone so wrong between the couple who had seemed so happy. But Kate said that it was too heavy and that she'd talked to them about it some other time. She had plans that evening and had to get going. A new friend named Sharon Smith had invited her over for dinner. As Caitlin left her parents' home, she told them that she would either stay the night at Sharon's house or come back to theirs. She instructed Don and Lois that if Yoon called asking where she was, they shouldn't tell him. Lois asked her to leave them Sharon's phone number just in case, and Kate waved her parents goodbye as she walked out the front door. It was the last time that they would ever see her alive. Around six hours later, just before midnight, Lois and Don received the call that every parent fears. It was a nurse from the University of New Mexico Hospital telling them that Kate had been hurt. When they arrived, they were told to prepare for the worst. Kate was alive but in critical condition. She had been shot twice in the head. As Don and Lois sat in the waiting room while their youngest daughter was receiving treatment, a detective from the homicide department came to speak with them. They had found a handwritten note with Sharon Smith's address on it on the floor of Kate's car and had already questioned her as to the events of that night. According to Sharon, Kate had planned to stay at her house overnight before remembering she had a test the next day she had to study for. What exactly had happened after that still remained unclear. Don and Lois contacted their four other children and told them to get to the hospital as soon as they could. Over the next 20 hours, Kate's family, co-workers, friends and her boyfriend Yoon visited her bedside, where Kate lay in a coma. Eventually, after a hemorrhage flooded her brainstem, Kate was pronounced brain dead and her life support machine was turned off. The following day, when newspapers began to print stories about the shocking crime, Kate's family started to put together the pieces of what had happened that evening. It was 11pm on July 16th, when an off-duty police officer, Detective Ronald Merriman, passed by what he believed to be a car accident. He radioed the station to find out if an accident had been reported, which it hadn't, before driving back to the scene. Once there, he found Kate's bloodied body in the driver's seat of her 1984 red Ford Tempo. 
Within seconds, another officer, Mary Ann Wallace, had arrived. Their initial response was that it looked as though someone had driven up alongside Kate before shooting her in the head, causing the car to veer off the road before striking a telephone pole. As far as they could tell, it was a random shooting. A few days later, Kate's family got the first inkling that all was not as it seemed. Back at home, Lois walked into Kate's old bedroom to find her other daughters, Robin and Kerry, deep in conversation. When she asked them what was going on, they shared something that one of Kate's friends had told them while they were in the hospital. She had said that the summer before, Kate had confided in her that Yoon was involved in an insurance fraud scam in California. He and his friends from Albuquerque would fly to Orange County, rent cars, and then stage wrecks, claiming fake injuries and pursuing a settlement. The participants were paid $1,500 each. Yoon had been staying with Don and Lois since Kate's murder, and her daughters thought that given the circumstances, it would be best if he went elsewhere. Lois, who had always thought of Yoon as a kind and honest person, dismissed their concerns and told them they were being ridiculous. But just hours later, she discovered more evidence that Yoon may not have been the man she believed him to be. Yoon had been out for most of the day, returning back to Don and Lois's home late in the afternoon, saying that he needed help. The locks had been changed at Kate's apartment, and he asked if Lois would tell the apartment manager that it was okay that he stayed there. When Lois called the apartment manager, however, she was met with a surprising response. He said that there was no way he was letting Yoon back in. He described times when Kate would come to his and his wife's apartment, asking if she could sleep on the couch because she was scared and that she'd even gotten him to change the locks before to keep Yoon and his friends away. When he did so, they'd simply smashed a window instead. On another occasion, she had locked Yoon out, and he had kicked down the door. The apartment manager said that Yoon could come and get his things under supervision, and then he would give Kate's family the new key. Lois was taken aback by what the apartment manager said. Though she knew that the couple had been arguing and that Kate was no longer happy in the relationship, she never realised that things were that bad. After the troubling call, she brought her family together to discuss what had been said, as well as what Kate's friend had told her sisters about the alleged insurance fraud. Upon hearing about the car wreck scam that Yoon had supposedly been involved with in California, Don remembered a call he'd received the summer before. Kate and Yoon had been out at Disneyland when a rental car company got in touch with him to say there had been a minor accident. As Kate had used his credit card to rent the car, he was their first point of contact. With no one injured, Don hadn't thought much of it, and when he asked Kate about it when she got back, She said that someone had rear-ended Yoon and his friend when they went out for food. As they were covered by insurance and the accident wasn't Yoon's fault, 
They had simply got another rental car, and that was the end of that. Don decided to call the police to share what they'd heard about Yoon and his friends, and Detective Steve Gallegos arrived at the house. So far, in the days following the shooting, the police had not recovered a murder weapon or narrowed down any suspects. Though there were no exit wounds on Kate's body and an additional bullet hole in the doorframe of the car, no bullets were recovered, either from Kate or the crime scene. However, Kate's friend Sharon, who she'd seen on the night she died, had relayed to Steve Gallegos that Kate was furious with Yoon, and so the morning after the shooting, he had spoken with him himself to find out what he knew. He told police that he'd stayed away from the apartment all day because he and Kate had had a fight, and that evening he'd gone out to a bar with a couple of friends. They gave him a ride back to his apartment where he waited up for Kate, but she had never returned home. He'd also said that when he got there, he found an affectionate note from Kate. The unsigned note, scattered with uncharacteristic spelling mistakes, read, Hun, where are you? I know you're still mad. I'm so sorry, okay? I miss you today. I went to Nam House to retune these books. I'll see ya. Love. When Detective Gallegos spoke to Yoon, he also gave him a gun residue test, which came back negative. Less than a week later, on the evening of Kate's funeral, Yoon was hospitalised after apparently stabbing himself in the stomach. At the time, he had been staying with friends, one of whom he'd been with on the night of the murder. When questioned by police a few days later, he said that he'd been so grief-stricken by Kate's death that he had tried to commit suicide, saying that if only he had not argued with her that night, she wouldn't have been alone. Don and Lois drove to the hospital along with Kate's sister Robin, where Yoon requested to see only Lois. In the room, Lois said that he assured her he didn't kill Kate, but when Lois said to him that he knew who did, and that he needed to decide whether he had the courage to tell, he allegedly replied, I know, I am deciding. Lois called Detective Gallegos and told him what had happened, and once Yoon had recovered, he was called to the police station along with Lois. In an interview room, Lois tried to get him to repeat what he said, but this time he was staying quiet. Though police still seemed set on Kate's death being a random shooting, as more and more details began to come to light, her family were convinced there was more to it than met the eye. Firstly, there were numerous discrepancies in the accounts that Kate's friends and boyfriend gave to police. Sharon Smith, for instance, had told the police that Kate had arrived at her house at 9.30pm, but on the night of the shooting, she had told Kate's family that she had arrived at 7pm, having come straight from a movie at a nearby theatre that had started at 5. Don and Lois knew this couldn't be true, as Kate hadn't left their home until around quarter past six. When she left, she indicated that she was heading straight to Sharon's house. Sharon had also said that while Kate was there, 
She'd got her to call her apartment numerous times to see if Yoon was there, but no one ever answered. She made the final call at 10.40pm. But by Yoon's account, he had been dropped home by his friends 40 minutes prior to that and stayed up waiting for Kate. Coincidentally, the day of Kate's funeral, when Yoon was discovered stabbed in the abdomen, Sharon Smith had also ended up in the emergency room. She said that she had been bitten by her dog, although according to Lois, her scar suggests otherwise, and she would not sign a permit to allow a release of the hospital report. Then there was the phone call that Yoon had made just before midnight on the night of the shooting. He called Jane, a mutual friend of both his and Kate's, crying hysterically and saying, Kate's dead, they shot Kate. Jane was certain of the time, because she and her husband had just got done watching the news and were getting ready for bed. But according to police, when they turned up at Kate and Yoon's apartment at 3am, he had apparently been sleeping and had no idea that Kate had been shot. There were also other phone calls that immediately aroused suspicion. Lois was going through Kate's things to settle her accounts when she came across a phone bill that included the night that Kate was killed. In fact, three calls made from the apartment had occurred while she was lying in the trauma unit of the hospital. Each one was a call to Orange County, the same location where Yoon supposedly went to carry out his part in the car wreck insurance scams. But at the time the calls were made, Yoon was at the hospital with Kate and her family. While Yoon had initially denied his involvement in these scams to police, he later admitted to taking part in two instances of insurance fraud, planned by a paralegal working in Orange County. Lois was later able to determine that the three calls made on the night Kate died were to that very paralegal. When Kate's family eventually saw the note that Kate had apparently left Yoon in their apartment, it only provided yet more evidence that he wasn't being truthful. Not only were there the numerous spelling mistakes which they knew Kate wouldn't have made, but the handwriting was nothing like hers. Worryingly, they had even provided handwriting samples to the police, who had apparently not noticed the significant difference between the two. The family went on to send a copy of the note and Kate's handwriting samples to the VDOC Society, a crime-solving club made up of forensic professionals, scientists, profilers and homicide detectives. They determined that the note found in the apartment wasn't written by Kate. Despite this, police didn't seem to place too much importance on Yoon's criminal ties, nor Kate's potential involvement. A deputy chief would later label claims concerning Vietnamese gang activity as nothing more than smoke. In fact, the police were following a different lead entirely. Several months after the murder, numerous tips were called into the Crime Stoppers hotline, identifying four people as Kate's killers. On January 11th of 1990, Detective Gallegos met with an informant, who in turn gave him the name of Robert Garcia. At first, 
Robert denied having anything to do with the shooting. But eventually, he said that on the night in question, he was in the car of a friend called Juve Escobedo, along with two others, Marty Martinez and Miguel Garcia. Despite the shared last name, Robert and Miguel were not related. Robert said that he'd been in the back of the car with Marty and that he'd seen Miguel shoot Kate from the passenger window after being dared to by Juve. At the time, Miguel was just 18 years of age, while Juve was not much older at 21 years old. Based on Robert's confession, the Crime Stoppers tips and a statement from a truck driver who claimed to have seen a car chase that night, Juve, Miguel and Marty were arrested. But there was just one problem. When Robert Garcia showed police officers the scene of the crime, he took them to the wrong place. As it turned out, there was no way he could have even been there. On July 16th of 1989, Robert Garcia was incarcerated at the Youth Diagnostic Centre. What's more, when police interrogated Marty Martinez, his account didn't match up with Robert's, with both giving different road names, directions and descriptions of both Kate and her car. When confronted, Robert said that he was scared during his first interrogation and had simply told the police what he thought they wanted to hear. While Robert was released, Marty was held in a juvenile detention centre, where he told officers and inmates that Miguel Garcia had been paid $40,000 to kill Kate. But he too, like Robert, eventually recanted his statement. He said he knew nothing about the shooting apart from what police had told him in interview, and with that, he was released. With the case around them crumbling, the murder charges against all the men were dropped. But thanks to Marty's remarks about the murder to numerous people in custody, the case ended up being sent to the grand jury, and a month later, both Miguel Garcia and Juve Escobedo were indicted for first-degree murder. By that time, Juve was nowhere to be found, while Miguel was in jail on an unrelated burglary charge. He stayed there for 18 months, awaiting a trial that never occurred. In spring of 1991, the charges were dismissed once more, based on a lack of evidence. The years that followed were not kind to the four young men that were accused of Kate's murder. Some time after the charges were dropped, Miguel shot himself in the abdomen in an apparent suicide attempt and has been in and out of prison ever since. Marty, too, had tried to commit suicide a few weeks after their initial arrest in early 1990. A few years later in 2003, Robert Garcia was found dead of a drug overdose, his body dragged into an alley and left there. In a BuzzFeed article from 2014, journalist Tim Stello tracked down Juve Escobedo, who said not a week went by that he didn't think about the case. He had some understanding of the pain that Don and Lois had faced, having gone through a family tragedy himself. His 20-year-old son had died in a construction accident just a couple of years prior. By the time the case against the men had been dismissed, Lois and Don had sought answers elsewhere, 
concerned that the police seemed to be showing little interest in what they believed to be significant evidence. Private investigator Pat Caristo began looking into the case in 1992 and uncovered yet another potential suspect, along with some strange details about the crime scene that had not previously been disclosed. Kate's car had first been spotted by an off-duty police detective who happened to drive by the scene. But there was also another car, a VW Bug, right by the telephone pole that her car had crashed into. When the detective turned back after finding that an accident hadn't been reported, only Kate's car remained, and a man named Paul Apodaker was standing nearby. Paul said that, like the police officer, he was passing by when he noticed the wreck and pulled over to take a look. His name was taken by police, and standard procedure dictates that it should have been run through the system. Had the police done so, they would have discovered that despite being just 21 years old, Paul had a long and troubling criminal history, including numerous violent attacks against women. It also just so happened that he drove a VW Bug, the same make as the car that was initially spotted at the scene, but then had mysteriously vanished when the police officer returned. Later on, Two of Kate's neighbours told police they'd seen three of Yoon's friends who frequently spent time at their apartment spray-painting a grey Volkswagen bug black in the apartment parking lot shortly after the shooting. Many years later, Paul told private investigator Pat Caristo that his VW was orange, but as it wasn't followed up at the time, no one can say for sure. In fact, despite the strange coincidences, Paul Apodaker was never questioned by police. In the years since, he has shown himself time and time again to be a man capable of the most violent crimes. In 1990, Paul shot a transgender person in the back as they walked down the street. A few years later, he raped his 14-year-old stepsister and was handed a 20-year sentence. He said that he'd done it so he could join his younger brother in prison. He was released early, only to be sentenced to another 12 years in 2012, after splitting open his girlfriend's forehead and stealing her car. Upon closer inspection, even the smallest details in the police's report of Kate's murder seemed to contradict each other. The off-duty detective, Ronald Merriman, said that Officer Marianne Wallace took Paul's information while she said that he had done it. Paul said that he never even saw a uniformed officer at the scene. Similarly, Merriman's report said that he called for medical assistance and backup, but statements from two ambulance workers insist that no officer, in uniform or otherwise, was present when they arrived to transport Kate to the hospital. They almost missed the scene, because there were no police cars and there was nobody there to wave them over yet Officer Wallace said that she was there directing traffic and that Merriman told her not to interview Paul Apodaker because he had already done so. While some of these details may seem insignificant, they call every facet of the police reports into question, including the circumstances and the manner in which Kate was killed. 
Kate's mother, Lois, insisted that police needed to take another look at her murder. But as far as they were concerned, they'd followed every lead they could, including information that Lois had provided them. They said that they'd conducted a full investigation into the Orange County insurance scams and that they found no connection to Kate's death. In 1992, Captain Richard Evertson, commander of criminal investigations, even told the Santa Fe New Mexican that Lois hasn't been real polite or real kind and we don't have too much dealings with her if we can avoid it. In the police's minds, pending any further evidence, the murder case was closed. Though the odds were stacked against her, Lois was determined not to give up. And as the years passed, she did everything she could to try and get the case solved. She continued to work with Pat Caristo, set up her own website and spoke at every event and TV show that would have her. Despite her initial scepticism, she even spoke to numerous psychics and followed up leads on her own. In 1997, an online campaign took place with more than 100 emails sent to New Mexico officials. The emails asked for Kate's case to be looked into again by an agency other than the Albuquerque Police Department. Eventually, Lois got her wish when the Bernalillo County Cold Case Squad reviewed the then 14-year-old evidence. Though they were able to come up with some different perspectives on the details of the crime, they weren't able to come up with any new leads. They did, however, conclude that Kate's death was not a random shooting and that there was no doubt that she was the specific target. Following Kate's death... Lois could no longer work on the thriller and suspense books for which she'd become so well known, explaining, it was as if these things I'd written about as fiction became hideous reality. Unable to face creating characters that would be put in mortal danger, she shifted gears and spent much of the rest of her career writing picture books for children. She also delved into non-fiction, penning the 1992 book Who Killed My Daughter?, as an exploration of Kate's death, and another similar title, One to the Wolves, published in 2013. But unfortunately, like so many parents of murdered children, Lois never got the answers she'd so desperately searched for all those years. After suffering a series of strokes, she passed away in 2016 at the age of 82. Though she crafted countless mysteries throughout her time on this earth, it was real life that dealt her the cruelest puzzle of them all. Who killed Caitlin Arquette? And why? Thank you for listening to episode 41 of the Case Remains podcast. If you'd like to keep in touch, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter with the handle Case Remains, and you can head to the website caseremains.com where you'll find write-ups on missing persons cases and unsolved mysteries. Until next time, stay safe.